0: On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with James Bezic about what to expect from Serverless in 2020. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 30. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with James Bezik. Hey, James. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Good to see you. So you are a senior developer advocate at AWS. Uh, Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background uh, and what you've been doing on the AWS developer advocacy team?
1: Sure. So I've been working with Serverless for about three years now, and so I'm really a self-confessed Serverless geek. I've used it to build quite a few applications, um, front to back, using only Serverless. And then in April last year, I joined AWS in the Developer Advocate team. And so this is truly the best job in the world because I like talking about Serverless people. So I get to go around doing conferences, blog posts, webinars, applications, and all sorts of other things to show people how to build things. So Uh, Since then, I've just been going all over the place doing these things, but it's been pretty amazing just to see what customers are building all over the place with these tools. Awesome. All right. So I was talking to Chris Munns uh, when I was out at reInvent,
0: and I yeah. put together a podcast there. And we were talking about all these new things that AWS was launching. Um, and you know, I think what happens with serverless is that it's moving so fast that things are constantly changing. There's always new features being released. Um, what serverless is is still up for debate, right? I mean, there's still a lot of questions around that. Um, so I wanted to talk to you because you and I talk uh, as much as we can, because I, I love talking to you. You have great insights when it comes to this stuff. Uh, and uh, and and I wanted to talk to you about sort of what are we going to see with serverless in two thousand and twenty, right? Because this is the year now where all of these pieces are starting to come together. We've got all of these tools, all of these things we've been complaining about, like RDS proxy, and we can't do this and we can't do that. like these are just these problems are going away at a rapid clip. Um so, Maybe you can give me sort of your take just on. I mean, what do you see 2020? What does 2020 look like for serverless?
1: It's a great, great question. So, in the last five years, you know, Lambda is really five years old. What's been happening is the space has been emerging and developing so quickly. We're simply seeing customers pick up the tools and build things and then find they need more features so we've been building out those features as quickly as possible and i think what's different this year is that this whole space is starting to mature very rapidly and we're seeing customers both startups and you know, huge enterprises using all of these tools at scale and starting to see the same patterns and emerging from their use cases so what we're doing for the next 12 months, is essentially looking at that entire list of requests that's coming back from customers where they want certain things and dedicating those resources to building out the features that they want. So, you know, AWS is famous for listening to customers and building those features. But I'd say in serverless, I mean, it really is the case that our entire roadmap is coming back from these early adopters and these users and helping us define what we now build. Now, in terms of actual concrete things, most of that comes down to improving performance all the time. We're always making sure we can um, make performance as good as possible, but also improving tools and making sure we integrate with developer, developer tools that they're using all the time, and just making sure that all the features, we sand off any rough edges that we have. So a lot of the time with with AWS features, what we're doing is we're deploying them out to customers as quickly as possible so that people get the first look of what we're building. And then when we get that feedback, uh, then we build the additional bells and whistles just to make sure it's exactly what people want.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. and And the other thing that I, uh... I keep hoping for this, right? And maybe, maybe we're not there yet. And I ask everybody about this, but I really want serverless to go mainstream, right? Like where just it's just what you're doing. It's the way, it's the way to build cloud applications, right? Because I think you have all of these use cases that are out there now. Um and 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 you know, from my newsletter, I'm always trying to capture use cases and say, oh, someone's doing this with it or someone's doing that with it. And they have these interesting ways of solving those problems. And like I said, these problems now have like official solutions in many cases. Um, so just what's your take on this idea of it really becoming mainstream and, and more customers starting to use it for or, or just being the first choice of 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 what to use when they're when they're building something in the cloud?
1: Yeah, I think so in my career, I've been one of these early adopt people where I was one of the first in the cloud and I was I, I used mobile and got into mobile development very early. And one of the patterns I see over and over is that the tipping point of things becoming mainstream isn't always that obvious. You, you go through this right. period where it seems like you're always walking uphill to convince people that this is something that's going to become the standard way. And then magically, at some point, it just does. And you didn't notice it happening. And I, I starting to feel that's becoming the way of the serverless because many of the groups I spoke to a couple of years ago who didn't know what serverless was or they didn't think it was a good fit for their use case are now starting to openly talk about serverless as an option at least and you know discuss how they could use it a great example was last year i went to the uh, the dc public summit for aws where all of the government customers mm-hmm. were there, and a lot of people were very interested in serverless and yeah you know, i've seen the same thing at all the summits and events we go to that even people who haven't actually done anything yet are interested in what it can provide in terms of both you know agility and scalability for building their applications
0: Awesome. So um, you mentioned tools and giving people tools in order to build stuff. So one of my complaints from serverless uh, right from the beginning is even though we are abstracting away all of this infrastructure, there's still a lot of configuration that has to happen. And and with AWS, that comes down to uh, ultimately using either cloud formation um, or writing complex interactions with the APIs, which nobody wants to do um, so the the cloud formation side of things there are abstractions on top of that we've got Sam, um, the uh, serverless application model that is a uh, you know makes it a little bit easier. It's very similar in feel um, to the serverless framework. Um, then we have the CDK, which is you know relatively new that allows you to just write code and that will generate infrastructure for you. Um, there's Amplify. I just talked to Natter Dabit the other day. Um, we were going through you know this amazing tool that is Amplify and how it sets up all these things for you. Does backend, does front end, um, and ultimately all of these things end up generating cloud formation. So the question I have is which, you know, which one do you choose? If you're new to serverless or you've been using serverless, maybe you're using, you know, something like Claudia.js or you're using architect or you're using serverless framework and you want to use something that's more AWS native,
1: like wh- where do you start? Like which one do you choose? I think it dep- depends on where you're coming from. So if you're a startup and you're using things and you're building greenfield applications where you can pick whatever you want, that's a very different set of situation to be in than if you're an enterprise and you're migrating legacy software into serverless. So most of the combinations of these things are designed for really different developers and different use cases. So I'd say if you're in a, in a greenfield space and you're doing this from scratch, then using a framework like SAM or serverless makes a lot of sense because you're starting at the point where it's going to build everything out the right way for you. Uh, whereas maybe if you're in an enterprise and you've got a certain set of tools you might find the cdk is a more comfortable way to go But what we're really trying to do is instead of saying to people this is one tool for everybody to go and learn to really meet developers where they are and give them the tool that they're most they feel most comfortable with given their use case
0: yeah no i think that makes a lot of sense i know for me um that again sometimes you have to get into that. Uh, into that cloud formation um, template uh, and start doing things in there. And it can be a, uh, uh, I always complain about this, but again, it's configuration. It's its own language. It makes sense. I mean, the same, it's just as hard with, with Terraform or something like that, but you're um, you know, there are a lot of configuration options there. So certainly as a developer that is uh, is new to infrastructure in a way um, it is certainly a, it is certainly a leap um, to, to, to learn some of that stuff. But, but again, those tools do make it easier.
1: Yeah, and you know, if you look at something like Amplify, what what's been built there is really interesting because you know, when you've got when you've got CloudFormation, it essentially gives you every knob and lever you have on the entire infrastructure right. as you know, as as YAML basically. And then when you look at something like Amplify, what it's doing is it's looking at the most common sensible defaults for given use cases and helping those uh, developers in an opinionated way. So if you're building those sorts of apps, that's a great fit. So where we hear customers saying to us that they want to have certain types of use case over and over and they don't need to have all of these controls, then we're happy to build tools that, that simplify that. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. All right, so let's get into some of these tools and um, products, right? That 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 I think. I mean, this for me, and of course, your feedback on this or your insights on this is, uh, I think, will be probably more enlightening than mine. But um, I think there are a few things that um, not even things that haven't just recently launched, but tools that have existed, the the way that we've been building serverless applications in the past. um, I think that there are a bunch of these tools, some of them are new, um, some of them are existing, um, but these are the ones that excite me the most. um, And I'd be interested to hear about this uh, from you as well. But for me, I think one of my favorite AWS products right now is EventBridge. Um, And when this first came out, which by the way, was back in, I think, July, right? July of last year, uh, Werner announced it at the New York Summit. Um, When it first came out, there were a bunch of people in our space. You know, we've got a very tight-knit group of of serverless geeks um, that like to write about this stuff. But um, there was all this talk like, this is going to change the way we do serverless, or this is the biggest thing since Lambda itself. Um, And I totally agree with that. There hasn't been a lot of fanfare um, around this. Um, that sort of kind of you know came out and then not much. There was no cloud formation support, which, was, which I think was part of the problem. But, but then you got all of this new stuff like um, the event schema registry and some of these other new features that got launched at, uh, at AWS reInvent this past year. So what are your thoughts on EventBridge and, and, and just how do you think people are going to be using it in 2020?
1: Yeah, I'm one of the people who am really super excited about EventBridge. I I think it has a transformational possibility for the way you build serverless apps, because at the very least, it can help decouple these applications. So if you build complicated serverless apps, you often find that you end up becoming getting functions and, and services that become entangled with each other by accident. And by putting EventBridge in the middle, you can totally decouple the producers and consumers in a way where your application is so much simpler. Now I think what's really interesting is that in the last month or two, some of the features that have come out have really evolved the product in a a very dramatic sort of way. So the schema registry and discovery features that you mentioned are to me just fantastic because I know from building event driven applications before one of the hardest problems is just keeping track of events knowing what they look like how they're shaped then when services change versions the events change having a registry that's built for you just makes life that much easier and then the discovery feature where you essentially just just pipe your events to this discovery service and it builds out the schemas is just amazing because it does all the work for you you get, right. you get 5 million events per month for free and That should cover most use cases Mm -hmm. and then once you're once you've got a, a schema in place you can pull it into your ide and then build applications directly off of that and use um events as classes in your applications that are strongly typed um so that's those two features alone were just just amazing and then recently we've introduced content filtering so what that means before we just had rules, and rules were kind of this blunt object. things either match or they don't match. Mm-hmm. With content filtering now you can put much more dynamic rule sets in place in terms of ranges of values and things that are much make it much more queryable. And so the net effect of that is you can push that logic back out of your code into a service. So we're back into the business of less code, uh, more serviceful type applications. So all of these features have been coming out pretty fast, and you know Eventbridge has a huge roadmap of things ahead of yes. it so i'm i'm i just keep watching it in amazement i'm super excited about it
0: yeah so one of the things i really like about eventbridge and and this is maybe a more maybe this is too even uh, this is even too geeky for this podcast but um so if we look at architectural patterns right and i'm a huge fan of architectural patterns so we've got our monolithic applications and then we went to service-oriented architecture and then we went to microservices and now people call things like you know nano services which i'm not a fan of that term but so if you think about the way that microservices and that's how i like to see or how i like to think about serverless applications building you know small units of uh you know small services with 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 clear boundaries uh, their own database to back them. Um uh, it might be four or five functions or a hundred functions that are part of one service, but um but essentially, you are encapsulating all of that uh, service logic in one uh, one cloud formation template or you know whatever that basically you're breaking it down that way. With service oriented architecture, that's when we invent, or we uh, introduced the message buses and and things like that and and being able to pass messages. But we were still sharing databases, and so again, th- there's probably no comparison here. But what I find really interesting about serverless applications, and certainly when you're thinking about serverless applications as microservices, and then introducing something like EventBridge, is that now what you're doing is using this this, uh, sort of enterprise service bus, if you want to sort of call it that, um, that handles this communication asynchronously, right? So everything is completely decoupled. You're adding in the rules and the filtering into EventBridge, but then all of the configuration for it, all tied back to the individual services that are subscribing to um, EventBridge. So you now have this sort of new type of architecture, and I don't even know what you call it, but microservices maybe, but the way that we communicate with asynchronous um, just feels so much different. And honestly, it, it feels a lot better to me. I don't know, just what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I. So I think a lot of what we're building makes distributed computing just easier for developers. And when you think about the scale that lots of developers now have to face with their applications, even with things like mobile apps. You know, these are complicated problems to solve when you get spiky workloads and there's huge numbers of, of transactions coming through. So a lot of these tools just make it that much easier, but the mental hurdle is going from this synchronous model to this asynchronous model. And so if you're used to building synchronous APIs, you know, initially it can seem a bit alien trying to figure out the different patterns that are being involved. But it seems like the natural evolution, given the fact that, you've got all of these services in the middle that have to handle this traffic and the timing issues involved you know start to evolve from from where you are in the synchronous space but i think that what's been put in place is 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 not too difficult to understand and once once developers start using this they find actually um for many cases it's it's the right way to go but it's interesting to watch this because i know that just even 12 months ago people were talking about you know with api gateway there's this 29 second 30 second limit problem mm-hmm. Do all this stuff throughout your infrastructure, or you heard about the lambda um, limits of five minutes, then fifteen minutes, because people are trying to work this way. And I think now we're going back to thinking about well, how do we break up these tasks? So it's shorter-lived tasks that run between services in an asynchronous fashion. So the whole the whole model is really evolving.
0: Yeah. No. And and so actually, that is a good segue into uh, talking about failing in the cloud, right? And so I I'm doing a couple of talks uh, at some serverless days this year and um the 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 topic or the 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 title of my talk is how to fail with serverless. Um and basically I should have like a a subheadline that's like how to fail with serverless so that your serverless applications don't fail or something like that. But um but basically what I'm talking about is when you start doing things asynchronously, I just generate a job. And now my, my Lambda function or whatever my service is, my client that's generating that says, okay, here's a job or here's a request. And then it says, okay, I got the request. And then it disconnects. And so now this is somewhere out there in the ether. You have something and it's routed through EventBridge or it's in an SQS queue or something like that. So you just have this thing out there. And at some point, um, you hope, that it will, will trigger something else to, to process that and do something with it. Um, and those guarantees are very, very strong. So it's not you don't have to worry that it's not going to process it. Um, what you do have to worry about is what happens if when I go to process it, um, something goes awry, right? And that the Lambda function fails to process it or it, there's a some um, you know conversion issue, and it can't insert that into the database because that was what it wanted to do. Um, and what I find really interesting about what AWS has done with the way that they've architected this stuff is to say, listen, we know things are going to fail. As Werner says, everything fails all the time. Um, I think I've said that about 12,000 times on this podcast, yes, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I totally agree with it because I know I've watched things fail all the time. Um, so when something fails, Um, there are provisions in place that the cloud will handle those for you. There are ways to configure things to be handled for you. Um, So you have things like the DLQs, which used to be um, the the primary way um, that you would take an asynchronous event that called the Lambda function. If that Lambda function failed, it would put that in a a DLQ. Um, They just introduced uh, Lambda destinations. So now rather than using a DLQ and just getting the event um itself now you get all kinds of context along with that why it failed the stack trace things like that which are super helpful you also have a success path right so if the if the lambda function succeeds I don't have to go ahead and put some code in my Lambda function to say, oh, now do this with it. It'll just automatically do that as part of the configuration. Um, you have failures built into SQS. We added um, a DLQ for SNS now. Um, so there's all these different ways that we should let the cloud fail for us and not be capturing. Um, you know, not be capturing these events or swallowing these events with try catches. Um. So anyway, so I have a whole bunch of stuff that I'm working on to kind of come out with that. Um. But your thoughts on that, right? Like, like what what is AWS's sort of? Um. I guess uh, if you can answer this, what's what's their philosophy on this? Um. Because this is this is part of, or an essential part of distributed computing.
1: Yeah. So as you you know as you said with the quote, the the Werner's quote is the philosophy that everything fails all the time, and so. The question is, how do you make your application resilient to survive those failures? And so most of these new features are really just extensions of ideas we've had that are in, in the infrastructure already in one way or another. But you know, if you look at DLQs, they've been around for quite a while, and destinations is an extension of that. Now it's not that we're telling everybody to you know to go and replace DLQs with destinations, it just becomes another way that you can handle a failure if you choose to. And so There are so many different ways of figuring out where failures work in your application. It depends on the sort of scale that you're working with as well. But I I still meet lots of developers who don't take advantage of these features in the way that they should. So although our infrastructure is very reliable, it's not 100% reliable. There's always a possibility that you have a service dis- disruptions in different services. So these features give you the ability to improve that reliability even further mm-hmm. if you use them appropriately. But we're starting to see now with some of these new features with destinations that it makes it easier to understand as a concept. So I think now um, developers getting more comfortable with how you can build this into their serverless applications.
0: Yeah, now, so one of the things that I really like about um, Lambda Destinations is the success path uh, allows you to, again, just write code, right? So traditionally what you would be doing is you'd say, okay, I have to include, like, maybe I want to um, write the information to SQS. Um, when it's, so I do some processing, I do some transformation. I want to send that back into SQS to do something else. Um, I would have to include the AWS SDK. I would have to make a call to the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, SQS service in order to post that event or to post that message. Now, if that fails, I could retry it in my code and I could do some of these things, but there's a lot of logic that I was building in there. Um, so now that, um, I don't need to do that, right? I mean, and and I can send stuff to EventBridge, which again opens up a whole new possibility of what I can do with it, right? So I'm not just limited to SQS, SNS, a Lambda, or EventBridge. I basically have every service that EventBridge integrates with that I can um, uh, I can utilize. But my question is, is that I think that some of that reliability and some of those retry mechanisms that um, people were trying to, and this is this is probably not the right way to say it, but sort of jimmy rig them in a sense by using a step function um you know because step functions are great and, and you should totally use step functions if you have complex workflows but even for some of those simpler workflows um it was just easy to say hey this is supposed to do x and then send the data to sqs if that fails i want to retry it i could encapsulate that in a step function workflow uh and then and then that would kind of handle that retry for me but you don't need to do that anymore because of some of these new features that are added so Obviously, step functions don't go away, but what are your thoughts on, you know, does this, this obviously makes it easier, right?
1: Yeah. So I do get asked quite a lot by people, you know, should I do, should I use destinations instead of step functions? The answer is usually no, but it also, it depends because if you've got a very, very simple process and it's really just a couple of steps and you don't want to incur the cost of using step functions, perhaps this could be an alternative for you. But generally speaking, step functions provides a lot more functionality to that. Um, in terms of both the length of the workflows and the complexity of things you can build in. So in most cases you wouldn't want to go from step functions to this, but it really is a, its another option for developers to use when they're figuring out the right sequence of events for the Lambda functions. And the net effect of all of this is just less code. Yeah. Because you know, this boilerplate you talk about, if you build it into one function, by the time you start building out these applications of 20, 30, 50 functions, you, you've got this duplicate code that you've got appearing everywhere. So if you can take that all out of those functions, it's a huge win in terms of shrinking your code base.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that is certainly something that I'm pushing in 2020 is, you know. Do some research. Figure out how to fail correctly, um, because that is. Uh, there are so many features built in, and and there's the there's retries. There's Um, uh, there's throttling, there's all kinds of things that are automatically built in for you. And I think one of the things uh, a lot of people don't understand, and I've probably mentioned this before, but um, if you call a function asynchronously or you invoke a function asynchronously um, and that function gets throttled, there's actually a built-in queue that will throttle that for you, right? So we talk a lot about using SQS queues and um, concurrency, function concurrency, um, so that you can do some throttling, so you can you know uh, reduce uh, back pressure or, or um, you know downstream pressure on uh, or pressure on downstream services. Um, but some of that is actually already built in, and if you don't need visibility into those queues, um, and there might just be temporary times where um, it, it the the concurrency spikes a little bit. Um, some of that stuff is just automatically dealt with for you. So understanding some of that stuff and not arbitrarily putting another SQS queue in front of it when you mo- most likely don't need to. Um. You know, I just think are, are are really interesting things. Of course, you have to know that, which is part of the the difficulties of serverless is uh, is sort of understanding how some of these pieces work.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, the team I'm on has grown from from just Chris to s- seven people now, and so what we're trying to do is surface some of these things in examples right. and and things we've written. So, my friend and colleague Ben Smith wrote a great piece on some of this about how you can, um. Figure out dLqs and retry mechanisms for your applications. So we're hoping as the months go on, we'll start to build out more of these examples to people to make it make it more obvious. Awesome. All right, so
0: let's talk about um, something else and and hopefully you don't get in trouble for answering this question. but why should you never use provisioned concurrency <laughs>
1: So provision concurrency as a feature is, is pretty interesting engineering. I mean, what behind the scenes and how it's been built is, is pretty extraordinary. But although, you know, in, in the general serverless space, we like the idea of on-demand lambdas and, you know, mostly we focus on our time on how do we improve performance of those all the time. But there's definitely a, a subset of, of cases where you have this requirement for close to zero latency. And so you find that there are some use cases where there's an enormous burst of traffic at a given time of day, and the scale is so enormous that someone needs, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 functions to run immediately. Mm-hmm. So really, this is a great solution for that. And we've already seen since releasing it, there's so many people who've, who've used it for exactly that, and it just solves that problem because it solves both the the cold start problem of setting up the execution environment, but also the cold start problem in your static initializer. Yeah. So it's a really neat solution for that. Now, where it it isn't designed for is just for the everyday lambda use case uh, that generally people use. And if you're using asynchronous flows, it's not something that's going to provide you any value. And in many use cases, it's not something that you'd want to necessarily add to your application. So it's it's an interesting feature just because where it's necessary, it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. It works really well. But you need to evaluate first whether it's right for your use case.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm joking, obviously, about never using it. But I think that it's one of those things where we have, where cold starts. I, I, I Right from the beginning, when everyone's like, oh, cold starts, cold starts, and I started noticing them very minimally when, um, I was doing a lot of user facing stuff and all of a sudden you get that, you know, through API gateway, you get like a 10 second cold start, but then you take things out of VPCs. And of course that problem has gone away too. And, and you start optimizing your code and you start tweaking some knobs here and there. And then suddenly that cold start is uh, two seconds or whatever. I get a two second delay sometimes when I go to load another website. you know what I mean so it it's those aren't cold starts those are coming just from network latency and some of these other things that um I think most people are um are are pretty uh you know used to at this point um I mean, I watch my kids if something's not loading, they just hit the refresh button about seven thousand times so um clearly that's not going to be the limiting factor if you were getting them all the time, it would be a, a huge problem, but um, I just found that that for most applications, the cold start piece is uh, is is not a big of a deal. Um, so certainly, if you need to do the pre-warming and some of these other things for uh, having the the amount of of uh, you know concurrency available to you, that's a that's a different thing. But certainly, um, for, to solve the cold start problem, I guess I'm just I'm not on board 100 with with that being a, a
1: necessary solution. I guess. Yeah, and I think with cold starts, it's a complicated problem because. I would say 80% of the time when I meet people who are new to serverless and they find a cold start problem, it turns out they've just not allocated enough memory to the Lambda function. Right. And so you meet people and they show you how something's taking six to eight seconds and I'll have a look at their function. You just change the memory and the problem goes away. Right. And so, But there's also lots of other reasons in terms of you know, the code that's being implemented. So I think as people come onto the serverless way of doing things, they start to learn that time matters and the resources you use matter they start to improve the code and the performance improves overall and a lot of these issues start to go away by themselves
0: yeah well and also the thing that's great about serverless is that since you're not really touching or in control of all of that underlying compute a lot of those optimizations uh you know chris said this you basically just make them and implement them and you just start seeing the benefits immediately um but speaking of speed so one of the things that has been a complaint Uh, for quite some time, has been the latency that has been added um, and the complexity that has been added through API Gateway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the new HTTP APIs are out. So why are these so much better? so
1: this is a this is a feature i really like as well because the api gateway as a whole service has a lot of extra features that many people often are unaware of but you know, because it provides all these extra features in terms of managing stages and api keys and ddos protection um cognito integration all these other things that as a if you're using them all it's fantastic because you you basically pay a fixed price and you get all this extra um feature set applied for you but in many cases customers have told us they they don't want all those features they want to have a more vanilla api in front of a service and they want to have something that, that costs less so this is really for that set of use cases where you want something that's much more straightforward and slimmed down and the nice thing about it is that typically we're seeing you know, latency levels that are much more consistent and lower because it's a smaller service Sure, and yeah, people have have taken to this just because obviously it's it's uh, over two thirds cheaper. It's it's a dollar per million transactions and that drops to ninety cents a certain volume. Um, so again, it's something where if you're using all the features of API Gateway, you probably don't care. But if you only need this smaller feature set, this is great because you can use this and you know save quite a lot of money on your AWS bill along the way.
0: All right. So what is the use case for HTTP API? Versus API gateway because API gateway has service integrations and like you said it has some of the um, the quota management and some of these other things that are there. So what can I do with HTTP API? um, You know maybe or what can I do with it that I that I could with with uh, with API gateway?
1: For, for the basic API uh, management set you would expect, the things that pass through to Lambda functions and interact with your application, and you don't need anything beyond that, that is essentially what this is designed for. And, and you see actually a lot of applications that people have written where, especially for uh, internal applications or things that are just small scale, this is absolutely fine. But it's really, I, I still think there's you know there's this combination of where some people use API gateway um, the original version with all of these features in place, but many use it without knowing those features are there. So yeah. uh, the conversation I frequently have with people is they end up building that functionality inside the Lambda functions. and Then you show them something like VTL or, you know, yeah. query <laughs> oh, I could just do it all in API Gateway. So right. I think it's a good opportunity to look at what feature set each service has and see what fits your application. Um, you will tend to find that one or the other is a very strong fit r- mm-hmm. rather than being you know, a toss up between the two.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've i been uh, using WebSockets quite a bit, right, which obviously is an API gateway feature and not a HTTP API. But certainly there are a lot, of, I think, use cases where, you know, the more straightforward I just need low latency um, and that routing. And of course, the Lambda proxy um, uh, integration, that's sort of how that all works. And so it's a, it's a very, very cool service. Um, all right. So. Another thing um, I'm going to ask you uh, about is, so RDS proxy came out. So the question is, should we just forget about DynamoDB and (laughs) use RDS again?
1: So people have this uh, reaction often where, you know, use one or the other. That, you know, I'm a huge fan of DynamoDB. I think it's an absolutely essential database for serverless development, you know, because the incredibly low latency, the massive scale it provides, and it's just a pure simplicity from a serverless point of view, and you know, I've used it for a while, so I, I've I've learned a lot of the ways that um, you have to construct your application around it. So I I'm still very much in the DynamoDB camp, mm-hmm. but at the same time. You know, everybody's got a SQL database somewhere and you speak to enterprise customers who have all their data in RDS. And so they have to use RDS as a data source for their application. So I think for customers in that position, it makes a lot of sense to use proxy because it just takes a lot of the headache out of managing this um, connection problem where when the Lambda function scales up, you can drain the resources of your database. And we've made some other improvements there too, as well as you know, through security and also failover speed and other things. But it, But I think from a conceptual level, this DynamoDB or RDS question is one that you, know, you and I will be talking about for a while because sure. I like some of the, other, the alternative ideas where you use both. You know, Why not have your DynamoDB um, database as your operational database for your app and then use streams to push the data to RDS for analytics? And so I think there are lots of interesting other ways of doing things, but for certainly people who need to just use RDS and not worry about it, the proxy is a great, great answer for them.
0: Yeah, well, and I think the other thing about the RDS proxy, which I mean, and I really like the, I, I love the idea of it because I do agree with you. There are people who are using analytic, um, you know, have analytic purposes or or analytics workloads, I guess, uh, and and you need to use something like RDS. You need to use MySQL or or Postgres or whatever. Um, what I what I don't like about some of these things, and um, and this is just opinionated on my side, is what I liked about the fact that it was kind of tough to use RDS with, um, with, C- uh, with 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 Serverless was the fact that it kind of forced you into using something that was a little bit more cloud scale, um, and so if you were using RDS. With a lambda function, and you had a low workload, right? So you're doing some ETL tasks with it, or you're doing um, administrative APIs or something like that where it's low interaction, low concurrency. Um, you know it was never really a problem. Those zombie connections eventually cleaned themselves up. I had built that serverless MySQL package that sort of worked really well for for those sort of use cases, even if you got to a point where you were using um, you know using close to your limit for uh, for connections. but uh, now, with this what i'm sort of afraid of is that people will be like oh i can just use i can just use my uh my relational database now with with lambda functions um and that kind of goes away but i do agree with you that this hybrid approach um is probably the best way to go about it and i have this in a ton of applications now i have dynamo db as the operational database that you can pound against that thing. Um, it'll handle as much traffic as you want to throw at it. It'll handle the right speed. The right throughput on it is amazing. Um, and then you just have a Dynamo DB stream set up. And then you just take that data and you push it into RDS. And what's interesting is, is what I've been doing lately is using the data API, which again, I think people forget exists maybe. Um, but what's great about the data API is it doesn't require the VPC. It doesn't require your Lambda function to be in a VPC. So you can have a VPC running and you have your your RDS instance in that VPC. Obviously, it has to be Aurora serverless to use the data API. Um, But you just take that data off that stream and then you just use uh, the data API from a function that is not in a VPC, right? So you don't have to worry about configuring that or whatever. And you can just push that data over there. Um, So I really like Um, I really like that combination of things. Now, granted, I see your point. There are many people who are on RDS and and need to use relational databases to do it. I still think that even though RDS Proxy is going to handle the connection issue, still think you're going to run into scale problems at some point.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things that I was thinking about recently. One is it comes down to choosing the right database for the right reason. Also true, it's been so easy to spin up MySQL for a database for so long, it becomes almost a habit that you lean on the database's capabilities uh, because it handles so much for you in terms of multi-threading and when you're developing large applications. And so now we have all these other tools available. I think you have to reevaluate is that, are you using RDS for the right reason? And it opens up this broader question of where should your data live in a serverless application? Because right. now we have all of these solutions, you know, the S3-based ones, RDS, NoSQL, and everything in between. And so as developers, we actually have a more complicated choice now about where the data goes and how we should manage it. But I think overall, if you make the right choices, it gives you more resilient applications.
0: Yeah, well, and, and I think that you, you make a good point about the source of truth, right? Like, where do you want that source source of truth to be? Obviously, in something like MySQL, um, you know, you can export that, you can move that to other places fairly easily. It's not quite as easy to export data um, out of uh, out of DynamoDB. Um, I mean, you can just run scan operations, and you can you can do that. But um, but I really like the idea of having that data. In DynamoDB as that sort of source of truth, um, but anyway, so we could probably talk about the the DynamoDB versus RDBMS for for quite some time. I mean, obviously, I'm also solidly in the the DynamoDB camp, but um, uh, but I do greatly appreciate and have always loved um, the ability to write queries in in SQL it's, it's quite easy. Although it is quite easy to write them in Athena, and so if you're pushing data into into S3 and now with the new DynamoDB connector for Athena, you can actually query DynamoDB directly using Athena, which is just using regular SQL syntax as well.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, with DynamoDB, I think it's one of the greatest things I did as a developer before I joined AWS was taking the time to learn how it yes. works. Because a couple of times I almost gave up. Uh, because the model is so completely different. But in, the, in recent months, you've seen all these new tools coming with DynamoDB, like the Workbench, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of materials coming through to show how to use things. So I think it's it's easier to pick up now. And you know, there's the Rick Houlihan video that's become legendary at this point for training on DynamoDB. But once once you click and you realize how it works and you see it work at scale through applications, it really is just an amazing service to be able to have in your toolbox. Yes, and speaking of toolboxes, I do have the DynamoDB
0: toolbox that um, that I'm working on, which uh, which again just makes writing data. Right now, it's mostly focused on writing data to uh, DynamoDB, but um, but that is actually one of the complex things that you have to deal with is the fact that um you have a different type of query syntax in order to pull data from it and also in order to do these complex updates you know sort of the the uh the uh, put items is simple but then when you do the update item you know there's a there's a bunch of syntax things there so that's actually what my project does around that um all right so there have been some changes with um some of the runtimes we went to node 10 then we went to node 12 um, Those all seem to be pretty stable. Everything sort of worked out there. Um, I've been pretty happy with the performance around uh, 10 and I just started using 12 and that's great. Um, but there are some things changing um, uh, with some of the SDKs and there's there's something changing with the Python SDK that's sort of important, right?
1: Yes, yeah, so what's happening is that we've uh, changed the way that Boto Core works so that the request module is no longer part of that. We've unvended it that enables some additional flexibility in the way Boto operates. Now, from the point of view of, of built using Python and Lambda, what this means is if you're already bundling your version of the SDK into your function, which is the best practice, and keep doing that, please, <laughs> you don't need to do anything. That works just fine. If you're not doing that, if you're relying upon uh, the included version of the execution environment, when that changes, you'll have to make some changes too. So What we've done is we've published some layers you can use that just give you the option of continuing to use that request module that you want to use within your, within your function. But I've just written a blog post about this that went out on the AWS Compute blog that gives you step-by-step instructions. But we just wanted to make sure everybody who's using Python uh, in Lambda, who's relying upon the c- request module, is aware of these changes that are coming up.
0: Awesome. All right. So, um, last thing then, twenty twenty serverless. What are your What are your general thoughts? Is this going to be the year?
1: Yeah, it's it's really snowballing in terms of popularity, and certainly seeing just the sheer number of people from all these different companies, you know, startups, and enterprises, and so many different types of industry, all starting to pick up serverless tools. And the, a lot of the things that we talked about just a year ago that really seem an incredibly long time ago now they're conversations that don't really necessarily matter that much anymore. There was, a dis- there was a discussion about what is serverless and all these sorts of things. And now we're starting to talk about architectural patterns, yes. and starting to talk about how it's not just Lambda anymore. Serverless is this concept of taking different services from different providers and combining them. So I think You know, we see people building things where you connect API Gateway, DynamoDB, S3, but also with services like Stripe or with Auth0, and then Lambda is just connecting things in the middle. So there's just a lot changing the way people are building very sophisticated applications at scale. And I think it's finally gone through that tipping point where it's becoming generally adopted. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. All right. So, James, thank you so much for for being here. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, how do they do that?
1: So, I'm available on Twitter at, at JBESW, or I'm on LinkedIn. People often send me questions on there if you look at my name, James Bezick. And I'm also available through email at jbezick, that's B E S W I C K, at amazon.com. And I'm on Slack and everything in between. But essentially, uh, anytime you send me a message, I'll do my best to get back to you as quickly as possible.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again, James.
1: Great. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Take care.
0: that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to James Bezic for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 30. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.